Alright, I'm going to be talking tonight about the priesthood of the believer. This is part one. I entitled this The Inward Journey. You'll understand a little more as we go. Make sure you get a handout. Alright. I'll get into this more as we go, but you know the Bible calls us a royal priesthood. And the book of Peter talks about it. There's living stones that make up the temple. There's the priesthood that we're called into. So all believers are supposed to be priests. A lot of people, when you talk about a priesthood, they have no idea what you're talking about. They start thinking automatically of like the Catholic Church or something like that, which has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Every true Christian is a priest But what exactly in the Bible, a biblical priest, what does that look like? Not what you see in in different religions and movements, what they call a priest. I'm not talking about that. But what does the Bible, what is that talking about when it talks about a priest and how does that look? Because the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest. So Jesus is functioning as a priest And we're called to function as priests, okay? So there's three basic things. We're we're called to be servants of the Lord. We're also called to a priesthood as Christians. And then we're also called as warriors. So three different things. So I'm going to do my best over the next little while. I'm going to take my time with this. I'm going to cover, uh, I'm talking about over the next eight weeks or so or longer. I'm going to try to cover a lot of this because... A lot of people don't know about the priesthood, don't understand. So let me lay some groundwork. This is just uh, this is just going to be foundational tonight, okay? But what a priest is, a priest is somebody that knows how to minister to God and then come out of that and go minister for God. That's what a priest is in a nutshell. So if you're taking any type of notes, that is number one. That is what you need to write down in bold print at the top and remember that because that is the most important thing. We've got to learn how to minister unto the Lord. You're not going to be able to minister for Him without first learning how to minister to Him. The ministry to the Lord has to do with worship and prayer. And then as you're worshiping, praying, and and getting alone with Him, out of that comes the ministry of the supernatural where you're going to see people getting hit by the power of God, healings and miracles, signs and wonders. But it's going to come out of your time with the Lord. It's not just something that's just going to happen, I'm telling you. It's something that is birthed in prayer. Oral Roberts, it was said about him that during his powerful campaigns where he would have these huge crusades and tents and thousands of people were getting healed, they, they said about him that it was interesting because People would bring in these prayer requests on pieces of paper and they would put them out on this table and Oral was supposed to go up and lay hands and pray over them. But they said that there were times that he would literally like climb up on the table and just pull those the, all those prayer requests into him and he would sit there and groan and travail over those needs of the people, the very people that were out in the audience that he was about to go minister to. But first, he was groaning and travailing over those needs. He understood that that was birthing something. So, it's going to begin in prayer. That's that's just the way it is. Every revival has been birthed in prayer and then sustained by prayer. The same thing is true with the great Pensacola revival where... You know, I would say, in my opinion, that there were at least a million people that got saved at least. Um, that's that's an, just a low estimate. That's a safe estimate. Not not really counting all the Christians that were backslid, not doing good, that got right with God. Um, but there was at least a million people got saved. But those souls were birthed in intercessory prayer. Pastor Kilpatrick said he would come up in the morning. Nobody was there at the church. It was dark early in the morning by himself. And the Holy Spirit was so moving on him that he was just, he was, you know, like in a fetal position down in the altar, just groaning and, and, and travailing and, and crying out for more of the Lord. And the people, during their, their prayer times, their corporate prayer times, they would gather around 
uh, banners similar to what we're doing, and they would they would weep and they would wail and they were crying out for revival and for souls. And the Bible says those that sow in tears reap with joy. So this is where things are at. Just be encouraged because I really feel like there's a definite momentum going on with ministries like ours. There's there's a few others out there, but there's something in the spirit realm that God, there's a great preparation going. A great preparation going on for souls and for a significant move of God. Alright, so let me explain the history of the priesthood. When Adam and Eve fell, Adam, God said that uh, he gave them the gospel. Right then and there. He told them that there was going to be someone that would come from the seed of the woman. That the serpent would strike his heel, speaking of the cross. But he would crush the serpent's head. And that's the victory of Jesus over the devil at the cross. And the Lord gave Adam and Eve the gospel. And then the Lord, it says in Genesis 3.21, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So let me give you real fast... What happened in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were always naked, but the Bible says that in the Hebrew, the first time it's mentioned and it says they were naked and they knew no shame, the word there in the Greek for naked is actually a different Greek word, I mean Hebrew word than what was used later, and what it, it meant partially nude. So what in the world does that mean? Well, when God said he created them in his image, the image of God is God is wrapped in light. So what happened was Adam and Eve... Even though they were physically naked, they were wrapped in light. The glory of God mantled them, wrapped around them. And so when they ate of the fruit, that glory lifted. That's why the Bible says all of sin and fall short of the glory. And then the Hebrew word is changed from, I believe it's Aaron to A-R-O-M to E-R-O-M, if I remember the order correct. But anyway, after they ate the fruit, the Bible says their eyes were opened and they were naked. And the Hebrew word for naked there is completely new. So they went from being partially to completely the glory left. The glory left off of them. And I'm going to explain that as we go. But God made skins from an animal. It doesn't say one animal, but I would imagine it was probably a lamb. It's just my opinion. Because God was prophesying to them that there was someone coming that would be their sacrifice. But God taught Adam and Eve that there had to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. That's why God killed an animal. So God was the first one to, to kill an animal and shed blood for sin. It began with God to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve learned that. You've got to understand, Adam and Eve lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. So you're dealing with, with children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and on that were alive while Adam was alive. And Adam walked with God at one time in his life, and he was somebody that was teaching them the ways of God. So I could just see him gathering up his family into him and teaching them about God, teaching them about shedding blood now, and that God gave him a prophetic word. It was the gospel that there was somebody coming that would uh, crush the, the serpent's head and that God taught him that there had to be bloodshed for their sin to be forgiven. And, and Adam was teaching his family, and I'm going somewhere with this. Cain and Abel, we know the story. Abel came to God shedding blood like he's supposed to, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice. Cain came, on the other hand, and he wanted to offer up fruits and vegetables, and God would not accept it. You cannot come to God on your own terms. You have to do it the way God says to do it. He will not accept it. God isn't rejecting you as a person, but if you try to come to him on your own terms, those terms will be rejected. David learned a valuable lesson because the the... Um, Old Testament showed that the priest had to carry the ark on the shoulders. And David tried to bring in the ark on an old ox cart. And because of that, the ox cart stumbled or it hit a bump or something and Uzzah tried to stop it and he died. And David lost a dear friend that day. But David should have been doing it the way God said to do it in the first place and that would have never happened. So, the shedding of blood was something that was passed down. Now you see... Many years later, you see in the life of Job, and I'm just giving you this because we don't know a lot about this. There's not a lot about this in the Bible, but I'm trying to show you where the priesthood began. So Adam, in a sense, became like a priest unto his family. And he taught them the ways of God. 
And this was passed down. There was righteous men that gathered their families and taught them the ways of God. And then there was wicked men like Cain and his family that went off after other things. But look, you see a snapshot of this. Look at look in the book of Job 1, 5. And it says, when a period of feasting had run its course, Job had, you know, his children, they would have all their friends over. They were pretty well off. And so they could throw these big parties. I mean, they, they had... Um, the, the bunch of extra food they could serve everybody and, and have a good time. And so they would have these feasts and these parties and they would sit there and have all their friends over. And look what, look what the Bible says about Job. When the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Where did he get that? It was taught to him somewhere. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them. Where did he learn about a burnt offering? Where did he learn that blood was shed for their sin? I mean, who taught him that? But he said, perhaps my children have sinned against God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. He was a priest unto his family. He would get them purified. <clears throat> he would get up in the morning and shed blood for his family so that the sin would be atoned for. This was an Old Testament before Moses and Aaron. Ancient practice that was in families. I'm telling you, I believe it was passed down from Adam because God taught Adam that and then Adam taught his righteous descendants that and they passed it down. And there was a, a family, it was an, I call it in, the, in here in the order of Job, but I mean, we really don't know much about it, but it's a household priesthood. And you have to wonder with somebody like Job that lived so such ancient times way before Moses and all of that, how in the world did he learn about purification and bloodshed and burnt offerings and all of that? Where did that come from? All right, then you've got later, you read about a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. This is really interesting. Abraham defeated four kings, my favorite story of Abraham in the Bible. And after he defeated them, he came to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest of the, uh, I'm sorry, the Melchizedek, he was the king of Salem, but he was a priest of the Most High. And Abraham went to meet him. And look at what it says. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. Now, where in the world did Melchizedek learn about taking communion? This is before Moses. The Bible says he was a priest of the Most High. He blessed Abram. Where did he learn about blessings? That was something that would have been common, I'm, I'm sure, back then. But they took communion together, and Melchizedek pronounced a blessing over Abram. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham understood tithing. These are people that walked with God. And they got a lot of this through revelation from the Lord and things they, they were taught. But the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek was a priesthood to both Jew and Gentile. That's what's significant. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest, but he was a priest to both Jew and Gentile both. That's why Jesus is called the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So anyway, here's the progression. It starts with some kind of a family priesthood. Now you're seeing some kind of priesthood established by God over cities and regions through Melchizedek. And this wasn't the only person. Um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, when he ran from Pharaoh and went out to the backside of a desert, Moses, Moses met a man named Jethro, and the Bible says that he was the priest of Midian. And Moses married his daughter Zipporah and stayed with him for 40 years. And Jethro, I guarantee you, it doesn't give a lot of details, but Jethro discipled that man and taught him about the ways of God and helped prepare him, getting all of that Egypt garbage out of him and teaching him the ways of God to prepare him to be the great deliverer of Israel. Are you seeing something here? Now... God decided it's time to shift the priesthood. It was something that he that God started with Adam, 
But now God says, I'm sending Moses to Egypt. He's going to bring out my people. I'm going to call this nation my people. And God decided he was going to create a high priest over this nation. So it shifted from being a family-based to a city-wide to now a national priesthood. And God called out the Levites. Now, of all the sons of Jacob, there were 12 of them. Why in the world did God pick the Levites to be the priests? There were probably two reasons. Whenever God called the people up to Mount Sinai, we know that Moses and Aaron were willing to go up to God. They were Levites. They were, they were descendants of Levi. They were willing to go near to God, but the other people said, No, Lord, we won't go near. We won't go near you. Let somebody else be a mediator between us. We're afraid of you. That was number one. They failed the test. How can you be a priest if you're afraid to go near God? Then the second was when Moses disappeared for a little while and Aaron and all the people built that golden calf and they began to have these Egyptian rituals. It was a lot darker than what many of you probably realize. I'm sure that there was um, sexual orgies and there was... uh, Um, perversions and everything else going on because that's what they did in Egypt. Anyway, while they're doing this, the anger of God burns. Moses goes down there. We know the story. Moses lost his temper. Okay, Threw down the tablets, broke them, um, ground the cow up into powder, dumped it in the water, made them drink it. I mean, he had a temper tantrum. I mean, he lost it, okay? But Moses said this. He said, all of those that are for the Lord gather unto me. Who ran unto Moses was the Levites. And he said, strap on a sword and go forth and begin to kill neighbor, friend, family, whatever. And the Levites did that. And I believe that those two tests right there are the reason why God chose the Levites. But God chose one family line out of the 12 sons of Jacob. He chose the Levites. Moses was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. He chose that family to be a priestly family. And Aaron and his sons, within the Levites, Aaron and his sons were the ones, the direct descendants of Aaron, were the ones that were allowed to be the high priest. Now the priest in the order of Aaron, now it's different. There's a shifting. And now Aaron has to learn the laws of God. He's got to learn all the different um, offerings, there was a lot of rules and regulations, but let me boil it down to you and make it as simple as I can. Out of all the rituals they did, it boiled down to a washing with water, a cleansing with blood, and an anointing with oil. And the priesthood of Aaron learned how to make people and places holy unto God, how to cleanse people, how to cleanse houses, how to cleanse land. It was in their law. They learned how to do it. And it boiled down. I mean, all their rituals had a lot to it. There was different animals. There would be a clay pot. There would be wood things, all of that. But it boiled down to pretty simple, if you want to make it as simple as you can, a washing with water, a cleansing of blood, and an anointing with oil. But that was the Aaronic priesthood. And you know what was neat was, whenever, I'll get into Jesus here in a minute, but Aaron and them, when they would cleanse people spiritually, like somebody that had leprosy, when they would cleanse them spiritually, many times they would physically be healed. And when they would cleanse somebody spiritually, they also at times were delivered of a demon. And this was in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus made the statement, we get little glimpses of this, whenever he was casting out a demon and the Pharisees said, you're doing this by the power of of Satan, basically. And Jesus said, I'm doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he said, then how do your people drive them out? Because the priesthood under Aaron, when they would cleanse somebody spiritually, a lot of times a demon would leave them or they would be physically healed. Do you see what I'm saying? So... God was in this building process, something that started with the family. It moved to a regional priesthood, now to a national priesthood. And 
it was six it was a progressively growing in knowledge and understanding and when jesus came on the scene it was the perfect timing for him now to pick up the mantle of being the high priest so let me show you how this works i'm not going to go to all these tons of scriptures i'm going to keep it just real simple but jesus was a descendant of king david through joseph and when he was born he was born the son of david the king of israel john the baptist a lot of people don't know this but john's family line if you read it in the book of luke zechariah and his wife elizabeth they were direct descendants of aaron the high priest so john the baptist was a direct descendant of aaron making him the legitimate high priest of israel but because of politics some things have never changed but because of politics john the baptist did not sit in that office they had a politically correct individual named caiaphas who had a good relationship with rome that sat as high priest but he was not legitimate he was put there by man but john the baptist was the priest the high priest of israel that's why he went out water baptizing people because he was purifying them and preparing them for christ's coming he was a priest but he was also a prophet and it was interesting because this is just something that's tradition it's not in the bible but people believe that that that, um, garments that john the baptist wore that when elijah's when elijah died and elisha died that the priesthood had taken those garments and kept them and that actually john the baptist because zechariah possibly took him out of the temple and put him on him but john the baptist was actually wearing the mantle of elijah but john the baptist came both as a prophet and a priest now why is this significant because jesus was born king of israel but he was not in the line of aaron and when jesus came to john to be water baptized john said to jesus why in the world would you want me to water baptize you you should be water baptizing me but what did jesus say jesus said let's do this to fulfill all righteousness melchizedek means king of righteousness he was a king and a priest so what you got to understand is under the ironic priesthood when it was time to pass the high priest he was getting older and now it was time for a new high priest he would take his son and he would water baptize him which is called ceremonially cleansing him and put the garments on him and the priesthood would be passed so a lot of gentile people don't realize is that john the baptist being the high priest of israel when he water baptized jesus it was not for jesus to be cleansed jesus was already clean there was a passing of the priesthood man he took jesus and he water baptized him and the bible says the spirit of god came on jesus like a dove not a bird but gently mantling him like a dove would come gently on somebody the spirit of god came upon him and mantled jesus and what happened was there was a passing of the priesthood now and john said after that basically saying i've passed now the priesthood to to him i must now decrease he must now increase and what did jesus do right after that he took his disciples and they began water baptizing people the priesthood passed so aaron had to understand i'm going to do this systematically but aaron had to understand the tabernacle he had to understand the priestly garments he had to understand the five major offerings the seven feast days and the furniture in the tabernacle and i'm going to explain all that just bit by bit as we go through this it's going to be really easy people are really going to latch hold of this and get a lot out of it but jesus now that john the baptist passed the priesthood jesus now began his ministry when he walked the earth remember john passed this to him but when he walked those three and a half years while he was here he ministered primarily as a prophet but you could see his priestly office at times coming up because he would go up to somebody and say your sins are forgiven that's a priestly ministry because he's cleansing them 
Jesus was the son of David. But now he was not only king, but now he was moving into the order of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. He was both now king and priest. And the scriptures are there to back that up if you want to study more about that. So we went from a priesthood now to Aaron was a high priest. And once John the Baptist passed that on to him, the Bible calls Jesus our great high priest. So it went from priest, high priest to great high priest. And Jesus is our priest in the order of Melchizedek because he's priest over both Jew and Gentile together. So let me say this again. A priest, this is kind of one of the things I really want to focus on today. A priest knows how to cleanse. Let me give you an example. The priestly office for us today as believers is very similar in this respect as it was back then, we should learn how to come into land that we purchase or a building, and we should know how to cleanse that spiritually so that it's holy ground where the glory of God can come tabernacle there. That's a priestly thing. It's a priestly ministry. And when people come to us, and, and they've been spiritually polluted by life. And maybe they're demonized because of that. And there's some sickness attached to them because of that. And they come to you. You should be able to operate as a priest and help them get cleansed and washed in the blood of the Lamb. Made holy, pure before God. And, and a lot of times that stuff will begin to leave their life. Is this painting a picture that's making sense here? I love what Sister Lila said, and it really stuck with me. When Jesus walked the earth, he was primarily functioning as a prophet. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was really crying out to God in intercession and sweating drops of blood, you could see that he was beginning his priestly ministry as an intercessor. Now let me show you one more thing about Jesus died on Passover. I mean, on the day, okay? The Passover lamb, while the Passover lamb had to be perfect, So while the Jewish people were bringing a a lamb that was being looked at by the priesthood to be examined, Jesus was being marched into, into Jerusalem and being examined by Caiaphas and also by the Romans. And while while the priesthood was declaring this lamb was without blemish, the Jew and the Gentile had to say that Jesus they could find no fault with him. It was parallel at the same time. On the day of the Passover, when the lamb, the, they had three, three sacrifices that day. They had one in the morning, afternoon, and evening. The morning sacrifice was when Jesus was being brought out and was being, you know, his back ripped open and he was being nailed to the cross. And you got to understand, Jesus is actually the high priest of Israel. And that cross was a symbol and type of what we knew as the bronze altar. So Jesus was the lamb that was on the altar. When people of the Old Testament would bring a lamb, they would cut it into five pieces, sprinkle its blood on the altar, put it on the altar and burn it. Jesus was pierced in five places and put on the altar. But Jesus was also not only the lamb of God, but he was also the priest. So while he was on that cross, they were sacrificing those lambs systematically. Throughout that day, here Jesus was as as the Lamb of God hung on the cross. But at the very end, when it was done, the high priest would stand over the evening sacrifice and say, it is finished. That's what he would say. While Jesus, at the same time that the high priest was saying, it is finished, Jesus was on the cross saying, it is finished. Because he was the high priest of Israel. And he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, gave up the ghost. So Jesus was operating there as the Lamb of God, but also as the priest declaring it is done. 
Jesus then went down into the lower regions of the earth and confronted Satan and took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. We know that the righteous that had died in Abraham and their faith in Christ to come, they had died, they were in paradise, they went up with him. Jesus actually went, remember when he told Mary, I haven't ascended to the Father, he went to cleanse the original rebellion of Lucifer that was a, some priestly office that he was doing there. He appeared to many for 40 days. You know the story. He ascended. But today Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. He's our great high priest. He intercedes. That's Jesus' primary function right now. A priestly intercessor. So people say, I want the heart of Jesus. Well, the heart of Jesus will be this. He has a heart for the lost to be saved. He has a heart for the hurting to be healed. He has a heart for those that are in bondage to be delivered. And he is ever living to make intercession for them. So as you begin to be a priest unto God, and you begin to worship and pray and intercede, you are coming into... You're connecting with our great high priest in what he is doing. See, as Gentile believers, a lot of people don't know these type of teachings because it's never been taught. But Jesus has moved into that powerful office of our great high priest, and he's wanting us to function as priests. So that means we've got to learn how to do the things that the priest understood under Old Testament, the, the picture and type, the shadows of what we have today. We've got to learn about that primarily that we learn how to worship. The priest would go in every day and burn incense. We've got to learn how to worship in spirit and in truth. The priest understood how to pray and intercede. We've got to learn how to pray. Prayer is communion with God. Intercession is different. Intercession is where you're standing in the gap. Meaning that, let's say, okay, some perfect examples in the Bible. When the children of Israel had made the golden calf, God got angry and he said, Moses, step back. I'm going to fry every one of them and I'm going to start over with you. Now Moses could have said, yes, Lord, and just step back. And, and God's not a liar. He, he would have fried him, man, and he would have started up. But Moses, but Moses said, Lord, I'm asking you to not do that. I'm asking you to show mercy. And God changed his mind. Moses stood in the gap when judgment was about to come hard on those people Moses stood in the gap and it brought he, he was somebody that was um, an in between in between what was going on in heaven with God and what was going on on earth with the people he was in an intercessor is the go between the person in the middle Abraham God said he was about to send fire and fry Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham, you remember the story. He said, Lord, if there's just a hundred righteous, would you spare them? And the Lord said, I tell you what, if there is, I will spare them. And it went down. It was, what, 50 and then down to 10. And he said, Lord, if there's just 10 righteous, would you spare Sodom? And God said, if I find 10 righteous, I will spare them. That's an intercessor. Abraham was an intercessor. But the problem was God could not find 10 righteous people in a nation. That's pretty bad. Anyway, and so God sent angels to deliver Lot and his family and fried the place. But nonetheless, Abraham was functioning as an intercessor. In the book of Ezekiel, it says that God looked and he could find no watchman to stand in the gap. And it grieved him that there was nobody there like an Abraham, like a Moses, to stand in the gap on behalf of the nation. An intercessor is somebody 
that through their prayers they can turn negative situations around. Edward Miller, the guy I was talking about, Argentina was a wicked place at that time. It really was. The Perón's wife was very involved in, in witchcraft and was leading the nation in that direction. She was holding national seminars about it. Um, the nation was, was away from God. It was, it was pagan in many ways. But Edward Miller and a handful of people got under the weight and the burden of the sin of Argentina. And they began to be intercessors. And they began to weep. Their tears were flowing like fountains. Literally, it created puddles on the ground. Edward Miller said that they were actually puddles. That people got under the weight of the sin of Argentina and were saying, God, forgive us as a nation. We have sinned before you. We repent. Forgive us, Lord. And as they vicariously repented on behalf of Argentina, God showed mercy. So an intercessor will get under the weight of the burden of the sin that's going on and will repent and confess it before God. That's why the Bible says in Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear and heal their land. But he didn't say if the wicked will do it. He said if my people will do it. So in other words, the wicked are there and they're doing what they do, but the righteous go before God and they humble themselves, they pray, they seek God's face, they make sure that they've turned from their wicked ways, and God said, I'll hear from heaven and heal the land. So the intercessors are the ones that birth revival in nations. This is a priestly ministry. But if there's nobody praying, it's not going to happen. There's got to be people that will get under the burden of their lost loved ones and intercede and travail until they know in their spirit that it's done. There's got to be intercessors that will get under the burden of a harvest of souls out there and pray and intercede until it's done. And they know it's done. And this is where God is taking things right now with this ministry. He's, he's really about to take us to a new level of intercession and prayer and worship. The whole prophetic word about ascending the mountain of God. We're going up to higher places. But this is a priestly ministry. So what did priests do? Number one, they would teach between what is holy and what is profane. The priest knew. They studied the word of God. And they knew that this is sin and this is righteousness. And they would teach the people between the two. Also, as I've mentioned, they understood about cleansing. See, God said in Leviticus, I believe, 14, that if, the, if there's a spreading leprosy in a house. You know, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they were going into Canaan, you know that those Canaanites, listen, the land of Canaan was a lot worse than what people realized. The whole giants, that, those were Nephilim, okay? There was witchcraft, there was human sacrifice all throughout that whole land. They sacrificed their babies to the god of Molech. Um, witchcraft and Satan worship, all that was all throughout Canaan. It was extremely dark. Okay, So they were very superstitious people. And when they heard that the children of Israel were coming and they heard what happened to Egypt, they got scared. And so what they did was they took their little demon gods that they worship. All of them had idols. They took those little demon gods... And they would bury them underneath their house or embed them into the walls to superstitiously protect them from the Israelites. And so God told the Israelites, when you come in, you're gonna, I'm going to give you houses you didn't have to build. I'm going to give you vineyards you didn't have to plant. Remember all that? Well, they go in and they possess those houses that they did not build. But inside some of those houses were those, those little demon gods. And God knew that with those idols there that there was going to be a demonic presence about that house and he didn't want his people living in that. So God would send what the Bible calls a spreading leprosy in that house. And all of a sudden, you know, Uncle Bob or whatever sitting there and he's just relaxing and all of a sudden he notices there's green and red streaks running down the wall. He's like, what in the world is that? And what it was was God was sending like some kind of a mildew some kind of a, it was a spiritual thing and God was showing them that their house was unclean. 
when that happened, they were supposed to go to the priest. The priest would come and scrape it, and they had a process of cleansing that house. But as priests, we should know how to spiritually cleanse a house, spiritually cleanse land, and spiritually cleanse people. So let me give you the three things I've talked about through this. The washing of the water. Number one, that's water baptism, but also it's the washing of the water of the word as you teach people and disciple people. But water baptism is powerful. First Chronicles, I mean, First Corinthians 10, it says that the children of Israel were baptized into Moses. And when they were, they went through that baptism. The water, you know the story, shut behind them. They were baptized, but they were separated from their past. And the enemy that was chasing them was destroyed. Water, baptize, water baptism is powerful and it's necessary. You know, people talk about it like it's some just religious ritual. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a very big deal and it's powerful. Okay, you can't go to heaven without it. And I need to say that for all the religious nuts out there that are saying I'm saying something I'm not. But nonetheless, it has power in it. It is a powerful thing. There have been people that were water baptized that, that have been delivered of things. Their stories. In fact, one guy that was a member of a band that got saved, he was all into drugs and everything, and he said that while he was getting water baptized, he literally felt something squirming around like this. He went underwater and came up, and he felt that thing come out of him. He was delivered of a demon in the water baptism. So water baptism is powerful. That's the washing. I've told people over the years, I've tried to tell people, um, they accepted the Lord maybe when they were a kid, but they got away from God. And they got into maybe sexual sin, and they polluted their body with drug and alcohol abuse. Um, they maybe got into the occult, whatever, and they defiled their body. They defiled their temple. And I told them, whenever I was leading them back to the Lord and everything, I said, you need to get water baptized again. Well, I was water baptized as a kid. See how pet doctrines ruin it for people? And I was like, listen, you, you, yeah, you were when you were a kid, but you've defiled your temple, okay? You need to get water baptized. And some of them listened and some of them didn't. But the ones that did listen, there was a cleansing in that. Okay, There's a washing of water, a cleansing. The second thing is the power of the blood. That's why I'm so big on taking communion, because I understand as a priest, I understand as we take the Lord's Supper and we get washed and covered in the blood, and this place is covered in the blood, I understand that God's glory will dwell here. And I understand that that makes you holy and you can go into God's presence. So as a priest... I understand the power of the blood. You know, I remember Henry Malone, I was reading his book on portals to cleansing. And he said that, um, you know, he did a lot of deliverance with people on house cleansing. And he said that there were times that he ran into a really stubborn situation in a home that, you know, had demonic spirits and they had a hard time getting rid of them. And, you know, sometimes when you move into a place, you don't know the history of how many people have lived there and what they were involved in, you know. So anyway... Henry Malone said that they would take communion together and they would go outside and they would take and they would uh, bury that, that body into the land and they would pour out the remaining juice onto the ground and applying the body and blood of the Lord to that land. And he said every time it broke. What were they doing? They were cleansing the land from all the pollution that was. The power of the blood to cleanse. Some people because of their really religious background, may not like that. They feel like that's disrespectful to the Lord, but it's not. It's actually very respectful because you're honoring His body and blood to be so powerful that it's so powerful, it has the power to break the devil's hold off of the land. It has the power to cleanse homes. And it has a cleansing power in people. I believe that taking the Lord's Supper, if people will humble themselves, forgive others, confess their sin, they need to do that, but I believe that the, the power of the blood in taking communion is so powerful that it literally has a sanctifying effect in people. It's like it's cleansing out of them deep-seated junk that needs to go. And I can see it over time. I can see the progressive work as, as that communion. See, Paul says it's purging the yeast out. How do you get yeast out? Once you put yeast in bread, that's it, friend. I mean, you're going to get that back out of there? But Paul said this, he said that as we keep the feast, he said it's getting the yeast out. That's interesting. Isn't it? Then the third thing 
is the anointing with oil. Oil sets something apart to be sanctified and used by God for his purposes. So you anoint something with oil, whatever it is. You anoint something, you anoint the, the room, and you're setting it apart to be used by God for his glory and his purposes. So even as this year is the very first year I've ever done this in my ministry, but I felt the Lord tell me to, to, to begin to do this. Remember, we celebrated Passover. What did we do? We applied the blood. And people told me, Pastor, I just felt such a, I don't know, just a glory and just a weight. I felt something happen when we applied. Because I went through, and by faith, the blood is applied by faith. I prayed over each person and applied the blood. Right after that, it was like stuff just started happening. People started getting delivered of things, set free from things. Why? Because the blood was applied. Then Pentecost rolls around, and I said, let's celebrate Pentecost. We did. And around that time frame, we anointed people with oil. You guys remember you were here. So see, this is the priestly ministry applying the blood and the anointing. And you guys have already been water baptized recent. But applying the blood and the oil setting you apart. And what's happened is this. Now, because of that, we're ascending the mountain of God into greater realms of his glory that you would not be going into without that cleansing. I'm telling you, you could get the cleansing on your own, but I'm just saying that you cannot go into these deeper realms of glory polluted and defiled. It will hinder. There's got to be a priestly cleansing. And if you read the, the book of uh, Exodus, I believe it's chapter 29, 19 or 29, but around that time frame, Moses took Aaron and his sons, washed them with water, shed blood, applied blood on them. Then he anointed them with oil. And then he put their garments on them and they were released into the priesthood. So what I'm trying to get at is we are operating now as New Testament priests in a similar manner the Old Testament priests did. It's just that now we have the fulfillment of it. So learning how to worship, learning how to pray, learning how to minister to the Lord. Learning how to carry the ark, learning how to carry the glory. Another ministry of the priesthood was hosting God's presence. Do you remember the story, I believe it's in Chronicles, where it says that the priest went into the temple and they were worshiping the Lord and the glory of the Lord came into that temple so strong that people could not stand up any longer to minister. They just ended up melting down under the glory. The priest, because of the spiritual cleansing, they learn how to host the glory of God, the presence of God. So we learn how to carry the ark. That was the priest. See, it, it seems ridiculous in Israeli history because they would go to war but they would send out the priests in front. They got the little ark, you know. Here they go. And and it would look so ridiculous, but yet they understood that if the ark went into battle, they were going to win. And they would also send the priests in front with their little tambourines. Here they are dancing and singing and praising God. But God would release confusion. So you see how the priestly ministry helps bring victory and warfare? All right, let me close with this. There's an inward journey. This is what I wanted to get to, and I'm going to build as we go. I'm just trying to help you understand the priesthood a little more, but there's an inward journey into the Spirit. In Psalm 42, it says, Deep calls unto deep. There's a place of knowing God where deep is calling unto deep. And what that means is your spirit, the deep, calling unto the spirit of God. Deep calling unto deep. But it's got to begin by the Holy Spirit drawing you. I want you to please hear this if you don't hear anything else. Humility is the garment of honor in the kingdom. You cannot come to God unless the Spirit of God draws you. Did you know that you would not be saved right now if the Holy Spirit didn't draw you? 
You didn't wake up one day and think, hey, that's a good idea. I accept Jesus today. That didn't happen. What happened was God's mercy towards you that even though you were a sinner, Christ had already died for you, and somebody somewhere in some church somewhere, somebody you're related to, somebody you knew in school, somebody somewhere prayed for you. That's what happened. And because they prayed for you, the Holy Spirit was sent in response to their prayers. And the Holy Spirit drew you unto Christ. And you responded. Now that's your job to respond. But I'm making a point here. You cannot just all of a sudden have a hunger for the things of God. Like wake up tomorrow and say, hmm, today I'm going to be hungry for the things of God. Doesn't work like that. Try it. It won't happen. Today I am going to have a burden for the lost. You can't just come up with these things. It's not just something. It's just one, two, three. You know, it's. The Holy Spirit has to do it in you. Why is that important? So you don't get arrogant about it. It doesn't originate with you. The Holy Spirit has to put a hunger in you for the things of God. The Holy Spirit has to put a burden in you for the lost or you won't have it. Paul understood this. He said, there is nothing in me that's good except Christ. And that's the truth for all of us. There's really nothing in us that's good but Christ. So the Holy Spirit has to draw you into a relationship with the Lord, a deep relationship. He's got to put that hunger in you. So what can you do? Begin to ask Him for it. Lord, let your Holy Spirit draw me into Christ. Let Him draw me into a deeper realm of worship and prayer. And give me a hunger for the things of God. Help me to love what you love and hate what you hate. I want to be a priest. I want to be able to know you. That's number one. Number two, the blood will take you into the glory. If you'll take time to really release your faith and take communion or whatever to apply the blood, get washed in the blood, and come through the blood, if you'll really take time with that. I'm not talking about rushing through it because you do it every morning and it's your little ritual. All right, Lord, this is the bread and the juice, and yep, here we go. It's not. That's not going to do much. Take time to acknowledge the blood. That you're being washed and covered in the blood and that you're coming to God through the blood. Because the blood is the access. If you try to go into God's presence without being covered in blood, you're not going to get in. You're just going to keep running up against a brass heaven. That's what it is. You're going to run up against a, where it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. You guys ever felt that before? Be honest, you know you have. I have too. That's called a brass heaven. You know how you get through that? The blood. The blood will cause the heavens to be open over you. And you can go right into the glory. Alright? The third is to move past the flesh. Galatians 2.20 Now this is real practical because every one of you get up in the morning you got bed head, you know, and you're trying to find the coffee pot or whatever you drink in the morning. Some kind of jolt, some kind of... Uh, what is this? Energy drinks, whatever it is. Here you are trying to find something, and you're tired, and, and you, you, you know, your flesh does not want to pray. I'm just telling you. But your spirit man does. This is why you have to die to the flesh, and you have to move into prayer, even though your flesh doesn't want to do it. You've got to die and get past that flesh. This is the inward journey. So once you get washed in the blood and you begin to worship the Lord now, you're moving past the flesh. The second thing, once you get past your flesh, is you're going to have to discipline your mind. You can get past the flesh, but all of a sudden you're thinking about everything you've got to do today. That can ruin a prayer life. And we've all done it. But you've got to learn to get past your flesh and you've got to learn to discipline your mind to stay on the Lord. And then the fifth thing, if you can do that, if you'll come through the blood and worship, you'll get past the flesh, discipline your mind, you will move into the Spirit. John was on the Isle of Patmos and he says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was in prayer. 
You know what it means to be in the Spirit? Some of you guys have experienced this. I'm going to explain it where it makes sense to you. You come into church. You've had a rough week. You take communion. You begin to worship the Lord. All of a sudden, you start moving past that rough week. And now you're moving into where you're, you're getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And you're really connecting now with God. And, and now you really feel like I can pray. I can really worship from my heart. And you're in the Spirit. It's now where your spirit, your human spirit is connecting with the Holy Spirit. And you're now communing with God spirit to spirit. That's deep calling unto deep. John was in prayer. And the reason why I know that is because he wouldn't have been in the Spirit if he wasn't in prayer. Okay? But he was in prayer. He got past his flesh. He got past his soul area. He disciplined his mind. And he was in the Spirit. And while he was in the Spirit on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus appeared to him and brought the book of Revelation. When you get in the Spirit, don't be in a big hurry. You ever notice little children have the attention span of a squirrel? You ever seen that? And you try to talk to them and you'll tell them something. And you've gone, you've gone up for about 10 Mississippi around that time. That's all. So you've got to focus and tell them real quick what you want them to get because the next thing you know they're gone. Well, a lot of Christians really are that way. I mean, they get into prayer and God's presence comes. And now they're starting to get in the spirit. And I've got to go. And they do it day after day after day. And I can just see the Lord up there going, if they would just stick around a little longer, I could tell them some things. I could do a deep work in them, you know. But don't be in a hurry. And don't do all the talking. If you're doing all the talking, you're doing zero listening. Notice God gave us two ears and one mouth. If he wanted to, he could have put one ear right here, okay. But he gave us two ears, one mouth. And number seven is soaking prayers. Samuel was probably one of the greatest prophets Israel ever had. I mean, people say Elijah, but the, the, the life of Samuel, he was an incredible man of God. And um, when Samuel was just a little bitty boy, his mom made a vow to God she couldn't have children. She said, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Hannah's prayer. God got you know allowed her to get pregnant. And she took little Samuel. She made him some little probably some little priestly clothes or whatever. Anyway, she took him to Eli and took him to the temple and said, I'm going to fulfill my vow. He is yours now. And Samuel was raised in the house of God his whole life from the time he was a little bitty guy. And what did Eli do? Eli, read this story. This is amazing to me. It says in, in here, listen, the lamp of God had not gone out yet, 1 Samuel 3.3. 3. And Samuel... The little boy Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark was. Where was the ark? In the Holy of Holies. So Eli knew that if he would let little Samuel crawl in there by the ark and lay down by the ark and sleep in the glory, he knew that that, that would do something in, in little Samuel in God's presence to prepare him to be the man of God he was going to be one day. Isn't that something? So my point is, learn to soak in God's presence. How many times have I told people, you get hit by the power and fall out, stay there for a little while. But some people, especially people new to the Lord, it's hilarious. They'll fall out, poof, and then you'll turn around, you're praying for other people, and they're back up. And you're going, okay, let's pray again, you know, and then they go back out, and then they're back up. Learn to soak in the Lord and just lay there in His glory because what's happening is, is God's doing a work in you. And when you pray and you spend time with the Lord, don't be doing all the talking and moving around. I'm in a big hurry. And you know, get past whatever it is you need to talk to Him about and lay back and soak in His presence and listen to Him and talk quietly to Him. But listen. And He'll show you things. He may show you a vision. He may speak to you something. He may help you understand something out of the Bible you've had questions about for years. Whatever it is. But he, there's a relationship there. And over time, if you'll do that, you'll become sensitive to the Lord's presence and sensitive to His voice. Now let me close by reading these two. This really this one story. But I'm going to skip from Exodus 19. 
I'm going to read a little bit of that, and I'm going to skip to Exodus 24, okay? But listen to this. When Moses told the words, he, okay, Moses had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was killed. They're marching through the desert, okay? Like just like what we're about to drive through, through the desert, okay? Tumbleweeds, cactus. They're going through the wilderness, and they go to Mount Sinai, okay? And they're there in front of the mountain. God comes down on the mountain. That would be an incredible sight. Thunder and lightning, smoke everywhere. The mountain looks like it's on fire on the top. There's a loud shofar blast. No telling how loud that thing was. Probably like a train. And I mean, they're sitting here watching this. It's an awesome thing. Most of them, are, knees are knocking together. They're scared. And Moses is over there going, guys, don't freak out. God has just come to meet with you. And they're scared. So let me take you now into this story. Exodus 19, verse 9. When Moses told the words of the Lord to the people, he, God had spoke to Moses. Moses turned around and told the people what God was saying. The Lord said to Moses, Go tell the people to consecrate themselves today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. The washing of water, remember? Wash. And be ready, because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. And you will set limits to the mountain all around it and tell the people take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain will not live. When the trumpet, the shofar sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain, told the people to consecrate themselves and wash their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for on the third day, don't go near women. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud shofar blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet, the shofar, grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered to him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now I want you to see, even though the law hadn't been given, Moses was acting as a priest and was consecrating the people. First off, he had already washed them with water. Now watch this. I'm going to skip to chapter 24. Then Moses, I'm sorry, then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. See, between chapters 19 and 24, the Ten Commandments were given, all these laws were given. Moses is telling them all this stuff. And Moses says, this is what the Lord says to you people. And all the people with one voice says, we will obey the voice of the Lord. Which they did not. But nonetheless, they said they would. Now listen to what Moses did. He had already had them washed with water. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. And all the people answered with one voice saying, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. In verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Now there's an altar being built. This is a priestly ministry here. He built it up with rocks and dirt, made this little hill, and, and he put up 12 pillars. He was creating an altar. And he sent the young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. They took oxen these large castrated bulls. I mean, killing. there was blood everywhere. So Moses understood the power now of the blood. Look what he did. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So he applied the blood to them. However he did it, he was flinging that blood on the people. 
and blood was hit in their garments, in their hair, it was on them. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders sprinkled with blood now. They went up, they saw God, the God of Israel. There was under his feet, it was like pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven uh, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand. The Lord did not lay his hand on these men. They looked at God, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Why? Because of the blood. I just wanted to close with that because it is, there is something about this washing and this cleansing and being washed in the blood that you can go up the mountain into God's presence. And as I've said before, the foot of the mountain is like the, the outer court. The middle of the mountain is like the holy place and the top of the mountain, the holy of holies. There's got to be a blood covering and washing of the blood of Jesus to be able to go up into that glory realm but it's a priestly ministry and we are New Testament priests Amen